Voter suppression is the name of the game for the GOP. We often hear about various schemes to suppress the vote of African Americans, but what about American Indians? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. Perhaps the most powerful and effective dynamic in the teaching of any culture's history is the intentional act of erasure. The most obvious example is the American war in Vietnam. Over the 45 years since it's been over, instead of learning the obvious lessons, reassuring myth has dominated our consciousness. It's far neater uh, for a militarized nationalism to paint the disaster into an old picture of well-meaning Americans knowing what is best for another nation, a righteous quest being undone by silly protesters. Of course, that is not the truth, and President Trump is now pushing for what he calls patriotic education with the blatant intent to erase unpleasant realities from the teaching of American history. Dominant theme with regard to the First Nations of what is now the United States has been that the settlers brought civilization to this vast landscape. The intent has been to wish away the ugliness, the genocide, to erase the original nations from our memory. But more often than not, the powers that be would like, sometimes the truth will out nearly totally destroyed. Indigenous people have largely been concentrated into reservations, often the least valuable, least productive, most remote lands. And where today is the election approaches, we often hear about various schemes to suppress the vote of African Americans. Well, what about the so-called Indians? That intentional effort to make it as difficult as possible for indigenous Americans to have their vote counted is largely lost in the rush of news. In a new book called Voting in Indian Country, author Jean Schrodel has a view from the trenches, which is the book's subtitle, and her book uses conflicts over voting rights and the ongoing effort to negate Native American voters as a lens for understanding the bigger picture of voting rights in America. Schrodel is convinced that what happens in Indian Country is crucial to determining whether the arc of just arc of history does indeed bend toward justice as Martin Luther King so optimistically said it did Jean Schrodel is the Thornton F Bradshaw professor of public policy at Claremont Graduate University she's written or co-edited six books including is the fetus a person a comparison of policies across the 50 states which was given an award by the american political science association she's been researching writing and consulting in the domain of native voting rights over the past decade her just published book is voting in indian country the view from the trenches and that grew out of this work thank you so much for being with us on keeping democracy live jean shordell well thank you for inviting me i'm happy to be here Of course, there are many angles from which to view history and politics. The way the recent corporate-funded PBS series on Vietnam basically did it has been described as looking at it through a straw from 30,000 feet up. You call your book The View from the Trenches. Please tell us in what ways that perspective is so valuable. Well, I would guess it's the opposite of the 30,000 up 
because what I've tried to do in this book, which there's several other good, very fine books about voting rights issues affecting Native Americans, but what I've tried to do here is do a ground up, you know, if you will, from the base and approach of how it has felt across time for the people at the ground level. Um, I did a lot of ethnographic work. I did interviews with Native activists, with plaintiffs, with lawyers, and much of that perspective um, infuses the book, or I attempt to. We have um, wonderful stories that link when you were talking about Vietnam. I mean, one of the people whose life story is included in the book is a man named Johnny Walker's Jr., Johnny Walker Jr., and he, Johnny Williams Jr., from the Walker River Reservation. And he spent much of his interview with me talking about his experiences in Vietnam. And he's an older man, and he chose to be a plaintiff in the voting rights case, Sanchez v. Sigvosky. This is a man who, now in his 70s, he's 80% disabled. Um, Agent Orange affected him, has had multiple rounds of cancer, passed on to his children. His feet were broken jumping out of the helicopters. I mean, this man paid the price, and there was no place for him to vote on his reservation. And he was he entered this lawsuit, um, and what he said to me was one of the most moving things that he found was when he actually went to court in the case, which, by the way, they won, and the judge was a woman named Judge Miranda Du, who was a Vietnamese refugee, and she had been one of those babies. For those of us who are old enough or watched the um, PBS documentary, you may recall the soldiers who were helping push children and babies into the helicopters to get out of Vietnam. Well, Judge Du had been one of those Uh babies. And he was one of the people who put those babies into the helicopters. And he said that it was so unbelievably moving to him that this sort of um, circular notion that what he did then came back Uh and carrying it forward. I mean, just it, it literally brought tears to my eyes. I mean, right now, even as I talk about it, I Mm. choke up a little bit. This is the perspective, as opposed to the 30,000 feet up. What does it feel on the ground? What does it feel like to have to struggle to vote after you went and fought for the country um, and are bearing those scars to this day? Um, Yeah, so many people have been in that situation, and we take for granted the right to vote, but... You know, given the the uh, atmosphere these days, the right to vote is being very much suppressed. I mean, really, uh, probably more directly and uh, overtly suppressed than at any time since the Ku Klux Klan in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, so voting is really important. And it's, it's, it's the value of the right to vote can hardly be overstated. And you you are not... Native American, you were nearing retirement when you were asked to take on this project a decade ago. The and Indian voting rights work is anything but glamorous and 
let me guess, probably financially rewarding, not so much. So what, 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 what drew you? Sorry, I'm laughing. I can't help it. Well, of course. What drew you to this research, given all that? Well, I had a student, a former student who approached me. His name was Darren Marquez. And Darren came to me and he said, hey, you teach American politics. How come you're not teaching about us? And I'm looking at this man, and I'm thinking he's Hispanic, last name. I'm not, you know. And it turned out he was Native American, and he said, you need to pay attention to what's going on in Indian country. He said, the things that are being done to keep Native people from voting is very much akin to what happened in the South in the bad old days. I mean, just he said, you will not believe it. And I was really shocked, and I thought, well, gosh, I'm a political scientist. I'm a specialist in American politics. I Initially, I thought, I'll just do a little article, you know, just little one little piece with kind of one-off, you know, say, hey, you know, we were hearing about voter suppression issues, and people are talking about African Americans, Latinos, older people, you know, sometimes college students, nobody's mentioned this group. So I'll just do a little article. Mm. Well, that was, that was crazy. I mean, I, 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 I think of it as Alice falling down the rabbit hole. I mean, I fell down the rabbit hole. I mean, I, I was, I was mind boggled. Um, that first article took me five years because I had to learn so much. And I've traveled. I have spent time in reservations, off reservations in Montana, Nevada, South Dakota, North Dakota, Arizona, um, and Alaska. I don't want to forget Alaska, but it's been a extraordinary learning process. And I have met some of the, like um, Johnny Williams Jr., some of the most, I mean, just wonderful people, heroic people, people who are struggling in ways that most of us would find almost inconceivable. And, Um, you know, in this COVID era, it's, it's sort of, in one way, easy not to know about what's going on in those communities that you just described with regard to COVID and healthcare. But once you get into that a little bit, it's just appalling. The access, the lack of access to health care. And, uh, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world to do is, you know, just focus on what's going on with me, with my community mm-hmm. here. But this stuff is going on. And for those of us who feel any sense of, of patriotism to what the Constitution is all about, what America is all about, Learning about what's going on specifically with the Native American communities, we we have to do that. That's just my opinion. We have to do that. It's important because it it tells us uh, so much about what America is and isn't. And many of us have hoped that America has made progress toward equal rights for all, including, of course, voting rights. Were you surprised? What you found when looking into native voting access? Tell about tell us about that, please. Wow, I mean, I will be honest. I I'm an urban urban slash suburban person, and 
I had not spent time in some of these, any of these kind of rural places. Um, just unbelievable distances and the level of hostility on some of the white communities. Um, I did work in a place called Jackson County, South Dakota, where the northern half of the county is where the grocery stores, the businesses are, and the election office, the county officials. Lower half is eastern half of the Pine Ridge Reservation. And there was had to have a lawsuit to force to force the county to open a early voting site on the reservation. The population is evenly divided. Um, people on the reservation, many of them said they would never go to the county seat because of the degree of racism there. Mm. They finally won a suit, but South Dakota, you may have noticed, um, the governor of South Dakota has been kind of in the forefront of, we aren't going to mask, we're not going to shut down, appearing with President Trump. Even though the county, Jackson County, agreed with the court to do a settlement, opening up an early voting site on the reservation. They decided, the only place I think in South Dakota making this decision, they decided because of COVID, they would shut down the site on the reservation. Didn't shut down off reservation, but shut down it on reservation. Mm. You know, it's like using COVID to deny these people the vote. The other thing that has started has been happening, I've heard stories, is using the Americans with a Disability Act against reservations. Well, you don't have a place that's ADA compliant, so we will not allow you to have a polling place. Um, what I've seen on reservations is what people will do when that is a problem. They will come out to people in cars and bring them um, collect their ballots or bring them materials so they can vote so they don't have to go into a non-ADA compliant place. Um, it's amazing. I mean, Alaska, in the primary we just had, they forgot to send ballots to one of the native villages where they have to get their ballots brought in by airplane. It just just forgot. And maybe it was forgetting, just like many of us have tried to forget what's happened over history in this country with the Native people. But can you imagine if a group in Georgia, say an African-American group, had been forgotten, the ballots didn't show up? It would be all over the media. Had you heard about this? No, I hadn't, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's because it's rural, it's isolated. It has been allowed to go on, to become reified, to fester. Um, and there are things that I'm learning now that I'm thinking about that make me rethink, still rethinking things. So the location of post offices, we're in the midst of COVID and voting by mail is incredibly important. We, I think we all know that. And I did some work in Arizona recently and I discovered that you can have off-reservation um, communities with as few as, I kid you not, 26 people. There's a place called Nutrioso, population 26, has a full-service post office. Concho, 38 people, full-service post office. Greer, 41, and I could go on. 
those are places that are in um, Apache County, which is part of part of Apache. Actually, most of Apache County is the Navajo Nation Reservation. Navajo Nation includes three three Arizona counties plus um, bits of Utah and um, oh gosh, why am I forgetting Utah and New Mexico? Mm-hmm. But what is the what is interesting, you have these tiny, tiny, low-population white communities that have post offices. You move on to the Navajo Reservation. The reservation is larger than the state of West Virginia. Whoa. There are 40 places total that you can get or send mail. Not all of those are actually full post offices. West Virginia has 725. One part of the reservation, 871 square miles, does not have a single post office. That got me thinking about the history. What you have in the past, we would have post offices established, and they've become then set. Um, Post offices, most of them were established in the latter part of the 19th century on the West. And they stayed in those places and it becomes set. And we don't think about the unconscious, Mm -hmm. um, I hate to say it, racism or the carryover. I mean, I hadn't thought about it, but think about the difference between someplace larger than West Virginia and then you have these little places like Nutriosa with 28 people. Well, it's, <clears throat> I don't think racism is at all too strong of a word to use. Bert Cohen here, for those who may have just tuned in. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about democracy in forgotten, intentionally forgotten areas of America. The book is called Voting in Indian Country. Author Jean Schrodel, uh, Voting in Indian Country, A View from the Trenches. And from the trench point of view, tell us please about some of the tactics used in the South Dakota primary election. A lot of Native Americans out there. Well, I mean, South Dakota, interestingly, um, Native people call it Mississippi of the North. And it's It's true. Um, it's been ground zero for so many of these issues. I mean, you may recall um, South Dakota is where Wounded Knee is. Sure, of Um, course. So South Dakota, you know, we had not just the Wounded Knee Massacre, the Wounded Knee Occupation, ground zero, the Mississippi of the North. And South Dakota got a lot of, a reasonable amount of positive publicity coming out of the primary. I mean, one of the things they did, they sent out to all registered voters, they sent out an um, application to vote by mail, again, to make it easier for people to vote. Um, their turnout in the primary, at least the voting by mail portion, um, went up a thousand percent. It doesn't mean that their overall vote went up a thousand percent. The use of VBM went up a thousand percent, unprecedented in the state, and they got a lot of kudos. Um, 
it's a good thing in COVID. But the interesting thing is you saw no increases in the areas, the precincts with Native American voters. Um, if you, I was mentioning Jackson County a little earlier. The, uh, most of the reservation is now a county called Oglala Lakota County. Mm-hmm. And it is all Pine Ridge Reservation. There's no white off-reservation parts in Oglala Lakota County. Its turnout in the primary was 10%. There was no increase. And you might say, well, how can this be? South Dakota is trying to make it easy for people to to vote um, by mail. Well, but South Dakota, what they did was they said, look, you have to, when you send back your request for an absentee ballot, it either has to be witnessed or notarized, uh-huh. in particular notarized. Bingo. And the other piece that comes into play, there's the um, Native American vote, the NVRA, National Voting Registration Act, NVRA, from the mid-1990s. That act allows, doesn't require, but it allows states um, to purge people from the voting rolls. Um, The purging, they would say, okay, to maintain the integrity of the system. If If an individual voter who is registered does not vote for two general elections, federal elections, you can remove them. But before you remove them, you send them a postcard or a little um, little letter, and they have to reply. I think if they have 30 days, I, I don't want to count on that, but it's a small, relatively small period. You send it back, and you could stay on the rolls. Otherwise, you are removed. Well, what I found in um, in South Dakota was huge numbers of people being removed um, from the registration rolls. So if you go another one of the counties that has large registration, large native population is Todd County, which is mostly the Rosebud Sioux Reservation, or almost entirely Rosebud Sioux Reservation. Between 2016 and 2020, the cat, they had, oh, and by the way, um, Oglala Lakota and Todd County the the, um, elections and all of those kinds of uh, activities are not handled by those counties. They are handled, they are called unorganized counties Mm -hmm. by South Dakota law. So everything is handled by adjacent white counties. Forgot to mention that. Between 2016 and 2020, 27% of the registered voters in Todd County were removed from the rolls by the election officials in the next county. The other piece South Dakota does, um, they're very, very aggressive in terms of pursuing uh, people who may not live where they lived when they registered to vote. South Dakota law says if you registered with one address and you're living someplace different, Um, that is voting fraud. Even if you are across the street, you can get up to five years in prison. Five years. Well, what happens, I was mentioning the Pine Ridge Mm. Reservation a little earlier, 
um, Pine Ridge, I saw some data. It's, it's a bit out of date. I want to be clear. So this was data from about 10 years ago. At that time, about 40% of the people on the Pine Ridge Reservation did not have a stable address. Didn't mean they were homeless, but it meant or in, homeless in the sense of living on the streets. Um, but they were couch surfing, crashing one place or another. So those people would be very frightened um, to try and vote if they were no longer where they were when they registered or if they tried to do an absentee ballot. I mean, South Dakota, South Dakota has done probably more things than any other state to make it hard for Native people to vote. All these things that appear on the surface to be neutral but are hard. South Dakota right now is being sued, um, again, by people from um, Rosebud and Oglala Lakota, suing them because um, federal law, uh, the NVRA that I mentioned a while ago, requires that states offer opportunities to register to vote at government agencies, so DMVs and, and um, you know, social services entities. And according to the plaintiffs in this case, South Dakota is not doing that. So Mississippi of the North. Uh, lovely. Uh, and some would think, and it is logical, that voting by mail makes it easier for people to vote. But you've described some reasons why it doesn't in Indian country. There are so few post offices. And as you say, you know, people have different cultures. Uh, having to have a fixed address, you know, I, I like it, a lot of people, but it's, it's not necessarily shared by all cultures. There's different ways of being, you know, in a community. And when things are, you know, tough economically, as they obviously are. I mean, I've been to a few Indian reservations area, and I just, yeah, it was appalling. I have to say, it was absolutely appalling how they can live at all, but that's the way they are pushed. Um, from the point of view of the trenches, people you interviewed mm -hmm. for the book, lawyers and other Native peoples active in voting rights, tell stories of deception, outright lies, mm -hmm. and, and the incredible lengths to which political elites will go to undermine equality and fairness at the ballot box. I wonder if you could just share a few of those stories. Wow. Okay, but let me jump back. I forgot one important thing oh, sure. on voting by mail, which is most reservations, you don't get residential mail delivery. So you have to go to those post offices. Sorry, I apologize no, sorry. Um, for, for forgetting that. Um, so in terms of stories, wow, there are so many. But I loved one that came... Um, there's a lawyer named Patty Ferguson Bonet. She's the head of the Indian Law Clinic at Arizona State University. And she recounted to me a story about an elderly woman who had always voted. And so, but when Arizona put in um, voter ID requirements and so on, she realized that her um, identification document, I think it was a driver's license, um, was out of date. And so she tried to get it um, updated. And this 
older woman went to the place, she went to the DMV, and they told her, no, you don't have the right documentation, even though she evidently did. And she ended up eventually um, having to literally bring in a lawyer, um, in this case, Ferguson Bonet, and they had to go to, I think it was three or four different places with a lawyer. So this poor woman who was elderly, who had voted all of her life, and she had to bring in an attorney because the officials at the different places said she didn't have proof that she was a citizen and that they didn't accept the documents that she had. And finally, um, after I think it took upwards of eight hours of traveling around with an attorney, she was able to finally be able to vote. Um, Ferguson Bonet also told me about some incidents from the Gila River Reservation, again, in this case, in Arizona. One of the issues there is, as these states have adopted the voter ID uh, laws, is if you, on reservations, many of them do not have street names or road names, or if they do have a name, they, they will not have it numbered. So what different government entities will do is they will assign you an address. It's not where you actually live. So maybe they will put all the people in one area, give them the address of a community center. Well, then conservatives say, oh, this is voter fraud. You have 400 people living at one place. And or another government entity will give you a different assigned address. So you don't have an address that matches or your address shows a post office box. So Gila River, they've had a lot of issues that Ferguson Boney told me where election officials refused to allow people to vote because the address was one of these funny ones um, that was assigned to them. So a lot of issues. Or if we turn up to Alaska, um, and again, I've only been to Alaska once, which is I went up there to do some interviews with some amazing people um, who are part of the Bering Seas Elders Group who live mm. literally in these villages. Um, and some of the stories they had were amazing um, because there, two issues, I think, well, at least two, um, come into play. One of them is that the state of Alaska did not offer education be beyond the very low primary grades in Alaska villages up until they were forced to do so by a lawsuit that was in the mid-1970s. It's called Hooch, um, Hooch v. I think v. Alaska, but Hooch was the case. And so they didn't get schools in villages into the, up until the 1980s when they were being forced to build them. What this means is the older people um, don't have any English. I mean, because life in the villages is all in the traditional native languages, languages that I'd never heard of, like Gwich'in and Yupik. Um, and so all the election materials will be going to these places in Alaska in English, with people who have no English. Um, mm. So the language cases, those are some of the most recent 
voting rights cases, those are being done handled primarily um, through NARF, Native American Rights Fund. Uh-huh. One of the people, one of the women I interviewed um, is a NARF attorney in Alaska, Natalie Landruff, who's been amazing. I mean, let me give a shout out to mm. NARF. Yes. While Natalie was handling those cases, she was also the attorney handling Bears Ears oh, cases. My. So, I mean, NARF's amazing. Yeah. Um, and Bears Ears, for those who may not be familiar with it, I don't know that much about it, but I know it's one place that uh, Trump, in all his wisdom, wants to uh, just open it up to all kinds of uh, uh, exploitation of uh, stuff in the ground. And uh, it's it's a uh, preserved park. It's quite nice now, but Trump wants to undo that. Of course, it's not inconsistent with everything else he's doing. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about a new book called Voting in Indian Country, A View from the Trenches. We're speaking with its author, Gene Schrodel. And one of the features that distinguishes your book from others dealing with voting rights is the attention you give to the power of historical events, going so far as to liken history to a, quote, living force in the present. But I wonder if you could give an example of how history continues to shape political conflicts in Indian country. Well, I mean, the lived history part came from Louise Erdick, who is a Native author. But history, I mean, let me let me link it in, if you will, to Bear's Ears. Um, yes, there is a link. Um, the very last military encounter in the United States um, was, I think it was around 1916, was 1620, right in that 1916 to 1920. It was something called Posey's War. It took place in Utah. It took place in the county, San Juan County, which is where Bears Ears is. And so the history of Native activism, resistance to the U.S. government was very, very deep in the Bears Ears area. And one of the things that happened, um, Bears Ears, President Trump was a national monument established under the Obama years. And Trump was cutting it back, and I think he has cut it back 80%. And one of the reasons he argued that he was legitimate doing that was because the San Juan County Council endorsed it. Okay. Um, and Bears Ears, that's in Utah, by the way. And so San Juan County, San Juan County had had many, many lawsuits around the ways that they administered and ran their elections. They were forced a few years ago in the last four or five years to move from an at-large system to actually district elections, which meant that it, for the first time, there was actually an opportunity for the Native Americans, and in this case, their Navajo, to be able to get represented onto the county council. And so that made the issue not just a local issue, a historical issue, but something of national import. Um, In 2018, you were looking at a situation where the Navajo, who comprised a majority of the population in the county, for the first time, had a chance to 
get a majority onto the county council. So one of the seats was all reservation, all Navajo, and so the Republicans didn't even bother running. So clearly a Democrat, a Navajo, strong supporter of the National Monument, Bears Ears, was a shoe-in. One county, one of the county council seats was all conservative white Republicans. So you knew that. So the question came down to the final seat. And the man who was nominated by the Democrats was a man named Willie Gray, Gray Eyes. Willie had lived his entire life there. He was a rancher. Um, he had been in a number of important political offices within the Navajo Nation. So he was a strong candidate, but it was also a district that the seat could go either way. Majority, slight majority, Navajo or Native, um, but typically the Native people vote at lower rates. So very contested seat. So he gets the Democratic nomination in 2018. And what happened, which was fascinating, is the county council, um, they went and removed him and said he was not eligible, that he could not be a candidate. Yeah, he could not be a candidate. And their argument was he did not live in Utah, that he did not live in the district. He lived his entire life there. Um, And their argument and their evidence was a um, county sheriff's deputy had gone out to his place and didn't find him and didn't see footprints, so they believed he didn't live there. Mm -hmm. And one of the Republican opponents said, no, he doesn't live there. Amazing. (laughs) And, yeah, this is where he lived. There was no... um, internet access, no cell phone, all of this. So one of the things he did do during the election was he had crossed over and spent some time with friends in Arizona where he could access the internet. Um, And so they removed him. And he had to go to court Uh. to force them to allow him to be the candidate. Can you imagine? And he won. Uh, So now... uh There is a Native American majority on the San Juan County Council, um, but you know you don't hear Donald Trump, Trump now saying that San Juan County, the elected officials support the cutting back of Bears Ears. So that history, though, oh, wow. it's so alive and it keeps it keeps going every time. Every time I think. They can't do one more thing. I mean, <laughs> and you discover they do. I mean, can, can, I mean, doesn't it almost take your mind, breath away to think they would re- just remove the guy and say, you can't run? <laughs> um, and if you can't imagine if you haven't been able to get the resources, um, pro bono attorneys, right. to be able to fight these cases. I mean, it's just... It's constant. Um, and, you know, we've yeah. heard about two two different kind of justices in America. There's justice for the wealthy people 
and justice for everybody else. Sounds like there's even a third level, too, like just complete injustice for the Native Americans. Just appalling. And going a a little more into history, I love history. Um, Let's see here. Um, I had something. Oh, yeah, the, the genocide of, you know, Americans' original inhabitants isn't exactly a secret, but the history of various legal rulings is well less well known, though they still impact the rights today. It wasn't until the 1820s and early 30s that the Supreme Court first considered the relationship between the U.S. government and Native nations. What course did Marshall Court's three landmark rulings, known as the Marshall Trilogy, set the nation on regarding the civic status of indigenous people? Ah. Great question, Bert. Thank you. I like you. I love history. I think it's fascinating. Uh, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Marshall trilogy. Uh, wow, what you know, Justice Marshall did was he went back and drew on papal bulls from the 15th century to wow. justify. Yeah. More history than you ever thought, huh? Uh, that's all right. Keeps going. Go he, on. He, he, he used papal bulls literally from the 15th century and 16th century to argue that Native people in what is now the United States were not actually owners of any land. They were merely occupants. Because oh. they were not Christian, and the same kinds of arguments were used um, in terms of colonial powers moving into Africa and other places. So it was not unique to here, but the reincarnation of it by Justice Marshall said they did not own the land, they were occupants. And the land was then available for Europeans when they came. And since the United States inherited um, the history of the Europeans, the Native people were still no longer actually anything other than occupants. He also created the um, notion that they were domestic-dependent nations. I mean, it's one of the fascinating things. When Europeans came to the continent, there were nations that existed. Of course. Um, yeah, and, you know, real nations, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, um, you know, the Iroquois Confederation is the most famous, but there were probably 600 different political groupings that one would normally call nations in what is the lower 48. But the Europeans, when they came, they didn't describe them as nations. They called them tribes. And once you use the term tribe, mm-hmm. it's implicit that it's something less. It's not I like... But the other side, they didn't know how to handle it. They also entered into treaties. Well, treaties imply nationhood. I mean, there's there's inherent sovereignty Mm -hmm. on the part of both parties to a treaty. So Marshall got around this with this notion of domestic dependent. So they're sort of nations, but not fully. He described the relationship um, between Native nations and the U.S. government as the akin to a ward to the guardian. Mm. So the guardian has to oversee them. 
you know, do things in their interest and so on. Um, yeah, fascinating, isn't it? It's just mind. But they also, the courts also held that Congress at any time could alter or even obrogate any treaty that it had entered into with these domestic dependent nations. Oh, lovely. Boy, at least yeah. it's, it's not too subtle. Less than. You are yeah. less than. I mean, it's not even pretend. It, it's, it's still amazing. And I can see why there are those interests that want to erase history. They don't want us to know this stuff. And as you say, it's still going on. It's, it's right here, right now. The past isn't even past. It's here now. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Gene Shordell. He's got a new book, Voting in Indian Country, A View from the Trenches. Now, I, I really appreciated the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which I <laughs> thought should resolve the voting quandary for American Indians. Why didn't it? Please share with us. What happened regarding Indian country access as a result of the U.S. Supreme Court striking down part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013? How were the wow. Native American nations affected? Wow. Okay. I'm going to jump back a little bit, keeping your theme of history. 1965 Voting Rights Act, when it was passed in all of the discussions, and I've gone through literally every one of the documents and discussions with respect to the passage of the VRA in 65. There are only two very brief mentions of Native Americans. Um, and there was no belief and sense across the board that the VRA, the Voting Rights Act, actually applied to them when it was adopted. In fact, Whoa. it was very clear the focus was, and not to take anything away from this, that the focus was on redressing um, the legacies, the carryovers, the racism um, towards African Americans. So interestingly, one of the interesting things that happened is in the lead up to the 10th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act passage, the US Civil Rights Commission um, did a study on what has been the effect of the Voting Rights Act. Now, most of it, again, was focused on the South, sure. as is appropriate. But they brought in a couple of incidents from Arizona and from South Dakota of incredibly egregious abuses. In both cases, absolute vote denial of Native Americans trying to vote and in one case, actually trying to run for political office. So in this report, that brought the abuses a little bit of attention when the Voting Rights Act was being renewed in 1975. That was where Native Americans, for the first time, got notice with respect to the VRA. And it was became clear that they were covered. They also, that was the year... Um, that they added in the minority language provisions. So parts of the VRA are permanent, such as Section 2, but other parts have to be renewed regularly. So the language one is one that has to be renewed regularly. 
but the one you were referring to a moment ago that came up in 2013 was Section 5 and Section 4B. And Section 5 um, had carried the bulk of voting rights litigation, there goes my tongue, litigation in the South, because what it um, required was that political jurisdictions that had histories of egregious vote denial, voting rights abuses, that those political jurisdictions, and it encompassed the entire Old South, had to get approval before they made any new changes in their voting laws or procedures. And they had to be cleared either with the D.C. District Court or be cleared um, through the Department of Justice. It's called preclearance. Um, so it was a way to preemptively stop these places from finding new and new creative ways to keep black people from voting, essentially. Um, and so this was incredibly important. And initially, as I said, it was all in the Old South, but that got extended to cover Alaska, Arizona. Uh, I believe there were some in New Mexico and those two counties that I mentioned earlier in South Dakota. So Section 5, and the implementation of it was through Section 4B. The Supreme Court in 2013, the case you were mentioning, um, Shelby v. Holder, Mm. the Supreme Court, Mm. um, oh, the Supreme Court ruled five to four conservative court that Section 4B, which implemented Section 5, was unconstitutional because it violated the equal sovereignty of the states based upon 40-year-old evidence. Well, it wasn't 40-year-old because the act had been reauthorized in, I think it was 2006. Um, Mm, But whatever, it gutted, it completely gutted Section 5, because you couldn't use it. You had no way of implementing it. Now, it is true that Congress in the ensuing last seven years could have passed revisions to the Voting Rights Act, created a new Section 4B to deal with the specific concerns of the court. Hasn't happened, and I think you and probably all of your listeners know why, because the Republicans don't want it to happen. Um, But what that decision did, it went way beyond, its impact went way, way beyond those specific places that had been covered. I mean, it was a green light. It said states, counties, cities, whatever political jurisdiction, you know, Go and make it hard. Do whatever you want. You can make as hard as you want for people to vote. Anything and everything, essentially, um, this isn't what the court said, but it's the way it came across, anything and everything short of absolute 
denial is a green light. And the thing that I think people have to understand is it's very hard to do a voting rights case. Across time, only 5% of voting rights cases involving all populations mm-hmm. have come from the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. And, and you know that typically that's Democrats, okay? But um, most of these things have to be handled by outside attorneys. Yeah, yes. Whether it's the ACLU, you know, it doesn't matter. But they're expensive. Yes. <laughs> I mean... And, and the Native American population is not known generally to have uh, great amounts of uh, financial resources. You know, it's just, it may be an incorrect picture, but I don't think so. I've seen no. some of the areas. So what can be done now? There's this uh, proposed Voting Rights Advancement Act. Uh, is, is there action going forward? And as you say, the ACLU, Native American Rights Fund, uh, but what... Is there hope? I mean, you know, that's one thing about uh, we have a large African-American population. Mm-hmm. They can make a lot of noise. There's not yeah. a lot of Indians. They can make a yeah. lot of noise. So any ho- reason for hope in the future? What's going on? Actually, I, I am hopeful. Good. You like to I hope that? you're hopeful. We've, we've got to be hopeful. Look, native, the Native population is about 2% of the U.S. population. That's not insignificant, yeah. That's not insignificant. It gets ignored because a lot of times they haven't been mobilized. I mean, that's the same as the Jewish population. People talk about the Jewish vote. Let's talk about the Native vote. But it's not simply that it should be up to Native Americans to pursue their interests. I mean, there are things, if if and when, please note, um, we get a Democratic president and a democratic congress let's if you're not voting please make sure you vote yes my Um, hands are together in prayer go ahead (laughs) yeah no i mean it's exactly i mean but there are three acts that i would encourage right off the bat a democratic administration to pass okay number one the john lewis voting rights advancement act Uh which would fix 4b Mostly not the most important one for Native Americans, but incredibly important for all minority populations. John, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Okay. There's also the Native American Voting Rights Act, NAVRC. What this would do is address specific issues that were not in the other act that deal with Native voters. So requiring political jurisdictions, counties, states to establish registration voting sites on reservations, work with the tribes, um, allow for non-traditional addresses to be on identification. The folks who have trouble because they don't have residential street addresses, work with the tribes on that to allow that. And the third thing that it would allow is ballot collection. And we've all heard the term ballot harvesting. Oh, my God, it sounds horrible. But in terms of, again, if we're talking about reservations, there are poor people 
by and large, yes. very rural, isolated, without transportation. And one of the ways they've been able to vote is by the tribal leaders doing collections, organizing it to collect ballots from these rural and isolated places. So allowing that and working with the tribes to find ways to make it easier for these people to vote. It should be a no-brainer. I mean, we should want everybody to vote. Let me say something about the third act I put on the list. And this is one that brings in history. It's not explicitly a voting rights-related act, but I think I think it is a extraordinarily important in terms of racial reckoning. This is an act that's called the Remove the Stain Act, and you've probably never heard of it. Most Americans sure. have not heard of it. Yep. Um, the pain and the ongoing pain of the genocide and of the massacres needs to be addressed, to be recognized. And the Remove the Stain Act, what it would do, and it's being sponsored, I believe, in the Senate by Elizabeth Warren, in the House by Deb Holland and um, Sharice Davids. What this act would do is it would say that Congress is rescinding the 20 medals of honor that were given to the 7th Cavalry men who were responsible for the Wounded Knee Massacre. Wounded Knee occurred non-belligerent Lakota people mm-hmm. who the 7th Cavalry came. Um, they had a problem, a dispute with an elderly man who was deaf um, and turned into a situation where the 7th Cavalry had what are called Hotchkiss guns. It was an early version of machine guns. Mm. They surrounded the encampment and began firing. That sounds it was a like, massacre. That sounds like a good thing to do. I want to follow that, Bill. Say, say what the name of that is again, please. It is the Remove the Stain Act. Remove the Stain Act. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Congress gives the medals of honor there to be honor and valor. Two-thirds of the people there were women and children. This act would be a beginning to deal with the kind of racial reckoning with respect to Native people. It's not saying it's the only place bad things happen, but it's a start. And that would send an extraordinary message. Well, we got to run. This has been very, very interesting. The book is called Voting in Indian Country, A View from the Trenches. The author is Jean Shordell. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, we can learn from history and make real changes now for the future. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. This is Indian Country. This is Indian Country.